0: Well, yeah, that is a loaded topic. We probably aren't going to finish it. I don't know that anymore. We're still trying to figure that out after how many years of, since creation. Um, if you are, we all know of the, the Proverbs 31 woman. In fact, if you're a homeschooler, you learn about the Proverbs 31 woman before you learn about Jesus. Homeschool conventions are filled with table after table after table of teaching our daughters to be keepers at home good thing. I've read uh, Rachel Held Evans has a book a year of biblical womanhood, and she has one whole chapter on what she's going to do to become the Proverbs 31 woman. She's going to get up early and keep working until after nine o'clock. She's going to work out to make her arms strong. She's going to knit a red scarf for her husband because her family is clothed in scarlet. make herself a purple dress because she wears linen and purple, and just a bunch of whole other things like that. And here is a picture of her actually praising her husband at the city gates. We're also told, 1 Peter tells us to call our husbands Lord like Sarah did. So are we supposed to call our husbands Lord or Master? Exactly what does make up for biblical womanhood? I certainly hope it doesn't mean during our cycles we have to camp outside so we're not sitting on anything and are we anywhere near our husbands or anybody else to make them unclean. Recently I read a quote by a noted theologian who referred to the scriptural focus of biblical femininity and I was thinking of various stories in the Bible and wondered if they fit our definition of biblical femininity. Like the woman who acted like a prostitute so she could get pregnant by her father-in-law so she could have legitimate children. Remember, she was considered to be righteous. Or we also have the midwives and Mephibosheth's... I don't have a picture of Mephibosheth's nurse, but they disobeyed the king. They disobeyed the authorities to save the life of children. But all like that, we also have a woman who defied her husband, so to save his butt. What about this one? Yep. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, the, um, Abigail was the woman who defied her husband. This here is jail. She nailed a spike through the skull of a, somebody sleeping in her. That's not the kind of hospitality I think lines up with the Proverbs 31 woman. But she was the enemy general. She's a sweetheart. Well, here's another one. What about initiating the relationship with someone you want to marry, even proposing to him? And another one, enter a beauty contest, kind of like our modern The Bachelor, including a knight with him to see if he kind of likes you. And if you win, you end up being the queen. But if you lose, you end up being one of his side mistresses. These really add up to a really good picture of what we consider biblical womanhood, right? But in reality, for much of church history, all of those things and much of the narratives we read in the Bible have been narrowed down to one narrative, and that is motherhood. And I think this is largely due to the fact that we were named, woman was named mother of the living. There's a lot of power in naming someone. When you name something, you give it an identity. You define it. And before the fall, Adam and Eve were given the mandate to rule and to take dominion. After the fall, woman was named mother. And ever since then, that has been her primary role. And now, and what I'm going to say, I need to give a couple of disclaimers. Well, let me back up a little bit because I wanted to really give us a taste of what our church fathers think of women as well. They have mixed views. If, if you know that they knew you, they thought you were pretty great, but woman, women at large were misbegotten and defective, according to one. Uh, but Luther said this whole thing of us being mothers primarily, he said, if women get tired and die of childbearing, there's no harm in that. Let her die just as so long as she has kids they are made for that. I could paraphrase, die as long as they bear. Augustine said, well, I fail to see what youth women can be to men if you exclude the function of childbearing. Now, so we can see throughout history, and it doesn't take too long, especially I've noticed, and I'm, I've spent 30 some years in the homeschool community, especially in the homeschool community, that you raise your daughters to be mothers, period. Um so in saying all this, one thing I want to say is I am not saying that motherhood is ignoble or not a worthy calling. I'm not it is a very worthy calling. I love being a mom, I have ten children, I have six I hope to meet in heaven someday. And that is that, that my children, my family, come before anything else. So I am not saying that this is not something that we want to aspire to. Nor am I minimizing or wanting to minimize the very real yearning that most many women have of becoming mothers. What I want to present is I want to expand the scope of what it looks like to be a biblical woman, to be a woman who follows God so that it's not limited to one role. When God named Eve, when he saw that Adam needed a helper, he used a very specific word. There's a verse here, though, that has given rise to an assumption well articulated by a friend That the relationship between men and women is one of a powerful protector and a weaker dependent with little recognition of the strength that women bring to a life lived together. For nearly all of world history, societal and church history, women were viewed as inferior until the last quarter of the 20th century. The language in the church was the superiority of men and the inferiority of women when it was changed to equal but different roles in the last quarter of the 20th century. But is that what God intended when he intended a helper? This is the this is the verse we get. It is not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Some versions say suitable for him. There's different ways of saying it. And this word helper is given is, is what has influenced our idea that women are subordinate or inferior and they're they're here to help men, which like Augustine said, well if they're not going to have kids then what help are they? Another one I think it was Aquinas said, obviously it's for bearing children, because if he wanted a helper or anything else, he would have chosen a man. Would have been a far better helper. There are several... One view of a helper, what I want to look at, there's this episode of Andy Griffith. If you've seen this episode, this guy is a, a, good, a good gentleman, English gentleman. He showed up in uh, May, what's the Mayberry one day, and he had a ticket or something. He couldn't pay it back, so he decided to work for Andy and B was gone, and he spent the whole time there waiting on them hand and foot. He met their needs before they expressed them. He was lots of fun. This, that's, that's one view of helper, just someone who is constantly there waiting on needs. There's something, nothing wrong with that because I'm not saying that. But That's not the helper that God used here for this word here. The Hebrew has four words for helper. All of them except one have the connotation of a subordinate helping or serving a superior. But the word that he used is this word, ezer. Now, this is two words. Ezer, it," puts two words together. This word, ezer, is used almost exclusively to refer to God's rescuing power in helping Israel. It always refers to an equal or a superior because, well, it almost always refers to God. So let's give another picture of this, this type of help. Do you remember in the second of Lord of the Rings, the Battle of Helm's Deep, they're losing badly. Um, Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas, and they're all losing. They're getting ready to lose. When just as dawn, who comes up on the hill? Is Gandalf and Eomer. And in the movie, you look, and Aragorn looks up and says... Gandalf, and he's relieved. This is the kind of powerful rescuing help that God is referring to and what the way he created what he created a woman for to be to a man. So I want to give just well, that's that's help. I'm gonna get ahead of myself. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul said, Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. If you're ever going to if there's a New Testament passage that's quoting an old testament passage, it's always good to go back and look at it, okay? So, Paul is saying this, and this has reinforced this idea that women well, we were created to help men. But if you look at the original, go back to creation, you realize that he created woman as his powerful rescuing help. Ken Bailey writes It wasn't Eve who was lonely, unable to manage, and needed help. It was Adam who couldn't manage alone. Eve was then created as an Azera, which is a feminine form of Azer. It doesn't refer to a lowly assistant but to a powerful figure who help, comes to help or save someone who's in trouble. Women were not created for men as for their bed and board, but to rescue them. They were created as descendants of Eve, placed by God in the human scene as the strong who helped come this, the, the help save the needy, the men. Now here's two modern movies that give a good... The second one... That one right there, I haven't seen that. Herb's kind of cheesy scene. I don't know. I haven't seen it. But uh, the other one, I've enjoyed that movie. But uh, This whole idea of they stay women, but they have a powerful that they come alongside and help when they're needed. They bring something to these scenes, these battles, these um, events that is needed. So that is what we're, that's what God created women for, this powerful rescuing help. Well, we're going to look at some biblical narratives as well. And the first one we're going to look at is Deborah. When you look at the historical context of Deborah, Joshua did not raise up a leader to follow him. And so then Israel descended into a cycle of apostasy, oppression, repentance, and deliverance. They would seek after other gods. They would go into all this apostasy, rebel against the covenant and God. And then someone would come in, defeat them, conquer them. They've would a period of time of oppression. And they'd cry out to God. They'd repent. And he would raise up a judge to deliver them out of the hand of the enemy, and that judge would would rule for a period of most of them are between two and 40 years. It's in this scene that God raises up Deborah. Judges 2 tells us God raised up... Well, I already said that. I'll need to go that. So God raised up Deborah in this place here. We see in Judges 4... Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time, and she held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. So it, Deborah was acting as a prophet, so she was assuming spiritual leadership over the Israelites. She was acting as a judge, so she was exercising judicial and political power. That word lead is the Hebrew word shafat, shafat. Which means to judge to govern it 's the same word used when it refers to Samuel leading israel it 's also the same word that the Israelites, that in the, the scene where the Israelites are asking for a king to lead them he was, they 're asking for a king to shafat them okay Not only was she a judge and a prophet, she also um, became involved in directing battlefield strategies so they could they want a decisive battle on the about decisive military victory on the battlefield. Interestingly, Deborah is the only judge in the book of Judges who's actually portrayed as functioning in the judicial position. If you look through all the judges, you don't see any of them actually judging or doing those things. They're called a judge, but the story around them is delivering Israel, not acting as judge, sitting and deciding things that she was. It's been said that Deborah, God raised up Deborah because there are no willing or capable men. Since when does that ever stop God? Let's face it, Moses wasn't all that willing to go. He did end up with Aaron, but usually God, a person's willingness and their incapabilities usually don't stop God in calling them. In fact, I find that God often calls the weak ones, the ones that aren't as gifted, the ones that aren't always as willing. He's willing to take the time to overcome that. But not only that, was Barak really a weak leader? He's listed in Hebrews Hall of Faith Now, this conversation between Barak and Deborah, it comes from Barak saying, well, I'm not going to go to war without you. It was common that leaders of countries, nations in this time, would go to battle with their armies. Not like today when the leaders sit at home and make decisions while the rest of the people go into battle. In that day and age, the king went to battle. Whoever was leading a nation went to battle. We see that in 1 Samuel. Why was David home and tempted by Bathsheba? Because he didn't go when other kings are going to war. He stayed at home. It was expected of him to go, and he decided to stay home. So Deborah, as the person, the judge, the one leading Israel, was expected for her to go. And Barak's saying, I need you to go, to be with me. I need you to go, and I'm not going to go without you. And that her answer was not, a, well, if I have to, I have to. It's fine. If you like, if you can't do anything without me, I guess I'll go. The, the phraseology, the grammar of that was an emphatic, absolutely I'll go. I, there wouldn't be any other place I would be. But now she remind, reminded him, some, some would say it's possible that Barak was depending more on Deborah than God. I don't know, but Deborah says, the honor to this battle is not going to go to you or me. It's going to go to somebody else, end up going to another woman. But her desire to go with, with Barak was not a grudging acquiescence to a weak leader, but a hearty, yes, I'll be with you. I will not leave you in this. Interesting thing that I think is easy for us to, we don't, most of us don't notice is the parallels between Deborah and Moses, okay? And it's obvious, well, it's not so obvious, but if you look at it, you begin to see this outline of Deborah functioning as a second Moses. Both of them functioned as judges. Both sat for judgment and the people came to them. Both proclaimed the word of the Lord. Both pronounced blessings and cursings. Do I have that in two things? Both were prophets, and both pronounced blessings and cursings. Both had strong military generals who led battles, decisive victories. I'm getting ahead of myself. Both gave instructions how the people would defeat their enemies. And in both cases, the Lord calls the chariots to panic and flee. God's victory is told in both cases, first in prose and then in poetry. Moses and Miriam then Deborah and Barak led the people in worshiping God after the deliverance. Now you can, I can give you these scriptures. You say, hey, can you give me all the scriptures? You can look them up. I just want to go through them real quick. So Deborah is shown as a second Moses who led Israel, a leader of a nation, a strong leader, a prophet, a deliverer of Israel who led Israel for, I think, 38 years, if I'm correct. So just as God appointed Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, and other great judges, God also appointed Deborah to lead Israel. We also have a leader in the church, Phoebe. I want to pay attention to my time because I'm, I'm, these are out of chronological order. So I get the ones I wanted and just speed through the rest. A fourth, Phoebe, um, is we find her in Romans 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Centuray. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of His people, and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been a benefactor. Other versions say patron of many people, including me. A 4th century commentator writes of Phoebe. In every land and sea, she is celebrated. Not only the Romans and Greeks knew, know her, even the barbarians. So this is throughout the, throughout the entire known world at this time, Phoebe was known, well-known. Now, we're going to look at a couple words here. Oh, I didn't get the verse up there. That's fine. The first one is diakonos. That's the word that's translated deacon. This means a servant or a minister. Okay, when it's it can it can be interchanged when it, here with Phoebe it's, it, they use the, term, the word servant, but most of the time when it refers to Paul or Timothy or who else do I have here Apollos or Epaphras, even Jesus it, most of the time uses the word minister, but they mean someone who serves the church. We're all designed to serve the church. It doesn't necessarily mean a lesser person who's just helping, but a leader who's serving the church. Okay. Now, um, we also have this word here, prostatus. This is a female. It's two words. It can mean, there's, you know how words have a primary meaning and then a secondary meaning, and sometimes other meanings. If you look in the dictionary, they're all numbered. The primary meaning for prostatus is a woman who has set before. The secondary meaning is a benefactor, a female guardian, protector, a patroness. Now, there was a patronage system in, in play, in this time. We still have it today, but it doesn't carry, I don't think, I'm not familiar with it enough to know if it carries the same level of influence or authority. But you know how schools will have donors who are like patrons, in that they, they have it, get a certain amount of money to support their school by patrons who pay a certain amount of money. Um, and they have a, a plaque or something or a room or a, an era, a building named after them. Well, it's similar to that, but it's, but it's even broader or it carried a connotation of leadership and authority that we don't necessarily have in today's patronage system. So you would have a client who would hook up a wealthy person, would supply gifts, land, food, the needs of another person. And in return, that client, for lack of a better word, would honor them, name inscriptions or statues erected in their honor, and they were usually seated at places of honor. This... And they had a significant, held significant influence over the ministry or the activity of that client. So this is the same relationship that Paul's referring to of Phoebe. Um, that she was, she was supplying him, meeting financial needs, um, supporting him, underwriting the costs, providing housing, those types of things. And in return, the areas that she did that those people would also then have significant authority and leadership in the churches in the areas of the ministries that they oh, were supporting. Craig Keener um, tells us that a patron was generally a prominent, honored member of the group and could exercise significant authority over it. The, um, this word prostatus comes from a group of words that has a strong connotation of leadership. It's a female verb. Oh, I'm going to hear Female derivative of this word here, proestomy, which means to lead. Both male and female terms mean to the one who is set before. Obviously, he's not someone who's behind, it's the one who is set before. It has the, this, this group of words here, like I said, to lead, to care for, to devote oneself to. Here's some verses that you, so the, let me back up here so I, we don't, I don't lose you. Prostatus comes from a word family. That also includes this. So they come from the same word, family, and they mean, it means to set before, one who is before. Other places where proistomy is used is let the elders who lead, where Timothy's talking about elders who lead in chapter 5. In Romans where he's talking about if you have this gift, do it with zeal. The one who leads with zeal, that word lead. Respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord so these are all part of this, this word family here, this Greek word family, giving this strong connotation of leadership and authority. Josephus uses this word to speak of rulers over nations and tribes. Josephus is a Jewish historian who lived about the late 2nd century and wrote a history of it, two books that are the history of the Jews. So we see in this. Now, what happened to the word that... Nowadays, we think of Phoebe as just a helper. And what happened was, Jerome, when he translated the Latin, Vulgate, when he translated it into Latin, he used a weaker Latin word for this word here rather than a stronger word. And the word he used stripped this word of its leadership or authority connotation. And then it was just someone who came alongside, someone who was beside. And um, I... I to me, it's it's like it's contributed to what I would call secondary misogyny, where the secondary misogyny is not a dislike or a distaste or whatever of women, a, a disrespect of women, like mis- true misogyny is. But what has happened is, today's in the last couple, last century or so, our translators and our interpreters and our commentators, they're relying on translations like drones. the KJV, the NK, the New King James, and a couple others use the Vulgate to translate. Then the RSV, the NSAB, the NIV, and a couple others use the Greek manuscripts. But if they can't figure out what it is, they'll go to a lot. You see what I mean? So Jerome's translation was a very influential in the way we have translated the English Bible. And he used a weaker term. So now today's theologians, they are doing their best to apply and understand the Scripture. But the, what they're using has already been stripped from what the original language was. You follow me? Another interesting thing about Phoebe is Phoebe was the, she was the one that brought the letter to the Romans. So we don't, we think of that just a postman. But what the, one of the primary responsibilities of someone who delivered a letter was to explain its contents to the recipient. So it is very likely that Phoebe was the first person to teach on Romans, to teach a congregation on the Romans. Now, Romans isn't necessarily the easiest book to understand if you read it all in one sitting, it makes it a whole lot easier. Trust me. So we have a leader of a nation. We also have someone who's a leader in the church. Let's look at a few more. This next one is Huldah. And in first, this is where it gets tricky, tricky trying to hold a Bible. And a, in 2 Kings 22, Josiah has been made king. They've found the book of law, and he's read some of it. He's torn his robes in grief, and he's asking, so what can we do? And so he sends to Hilkiah, I'm not going to worry about it, he sends to Hilkiah, what are we going to do about this? Can you explain this to me? What does Hilkiah do? Hilkiah, along with, Hilkiah is the high priest, along with, I'm going to just read my notes rather than here, the father of the future governor, I'm not going to try to pronounce these names, Ahikam, I don't know, he's the father of the future governor, the son of a prophet, Akbor, Shaphan was the secretary of the state, we're putting these in modern terms because they didn't have secretary of state, you're with me, right? And then a king's officer. These five men in high places of governmental and religious authority, they go to Huldah to figure out what to do. Huldah is a prophet at the time. Back to this whole idea that women are raised up when there's no men available. Huldah, if you look at chapter 22 of Second Kings, she lived in Jerusalem. Jeremiah wasn't very far from Jerusalem at this time. So Huldah is a contemporary of Jeremiah. Not exactly a weaker male that couldn't handle understanding the word. They go to Huldah. So, five men in leadership roles, including the king and the high priest, representing government, judicial, and spiritual leadership. They go to a woman to understand what God is trying to say through the scriptures and what they should do about it. She is acting as an advisor to the king and a counselor to government and religious authorities on the understanding of scripture and what they should do about this book of the law. Now, Interesting thing, she, she was not summoned like the king would do to a subordinate. They, he sent this embassy to her. We also have another one is Priscilla. I'm looking at my time here. And so I'm going to have to, uh, Priscilla, whenever Priscilla or Aquila are mentioned, if it's related to their home or their business, Aquila's name is mentioned first. If it's related to their ministry or a type of teaching in the church, Priscilla's name is mentioned first. Priscilla and Aquila, or, or accompanying Paul on the way to Corinth, then they no, they're going to Syria, and they stop at Ephesus, and they leave Priscilla and Aquila there. Evidently, they get a church going. This is the same church where um, Apollos is. is um, teaching about Jesus, and they pull him aside, and Priscilla and Aquila teach him. The idea of her name being first, she had heavy influence in that teaching. So, she was teaching Apollos. Not only that, they were leaders there at the Church of Ephesus. The Church of Ephesus is the place where Paul wrote his letter to Timothy, First Timothy. So, it seems highly unlikely if he's got a strong teacher in there. Is he really telling women they can't teach if he's got a teacher who's helping lead his church there? Now, remember, Timothy was an apostle overseeing these churches, and Priscilla and Aquila are and they helped with the Church of Rome, I want to say. Another interesting thing, I find it interesting, is she is one of three or four candidates who possibly wrote the book of Hebrews. The popular ones are Paul, Apollos, Priscilla, and then there's one or two others. Um, to me, I, I don't. I, there's no definitive answer on that. I'm not going to say, but it does kind of, um, it's fascinating, but also kind of helps explain why it's the only New Testament book without an author assigned to it. Every other author, when we know, well... We say who it is. They're still up for debate whether some of those letters were written by Paul. All right, so we have Priscilla. We also have Junia, who's an apostle. The early church knew that she was a female, and after a while, we thought, well, if females can't be in leadership, then she must not be a woman. She must be a man. They tried to give her the name Junius, but there were no Junius any other record of a Junius at that time, plus in the Greek, if you're going to use a diminutive, like Junia being short, we shorten things like Jonathan becomes John, Timothy becomes Tim, Okay, in the Greek, they expanded it. Priscilla's name is really Prissa. The diminutive form is Priscilla. They lengthen it, so they're not going to they're not going to shorten Junius, a male name, to Junia. And then once they find out what it is, a woman, they have to accept that it is a woman. Then they think. Then it became well, she's not outstanding among the apostles. She's well known by the apostles. But the Greek there, that word for one, that outstanding gives a strong connotation that it's a selection from within a group. It would be like if you have a student. This is an A student. You're pulling that. That's one student out of your class. of. Also, the Greek word there, N, is within. It's not what you, they would use another word to imply if it was well-known by, but it's somebody within. We also have Lydia, who's a business owner. Wealthy business owner. She ended up helping to found the church. The church of Philippi met in her home. So we have so far, we have a, lead, a governmental leader, a religious leader. We have a teacher. We have a businesswoman. And we have a prophet or expositor of the scripture. All of these are narratives within the Bible that tell us more about what, that expand the role of what women can do. We're going to go outside the Bible just briefly. Um, Starks, Rodney Starks wrote a book, The Rise of Christianity, and he and listed four or five factors that were responsible for the Christianity rising from an obscure cult within a powerful empire to the dominant religious force in the world. And he had devotes a whole chapter to the influence of women on the rise of Christianity. Christianity in its early stages was not very popular among the the elites of society, the popular society, but it was very attractive to those on the fringes of society, the outcasts, the slaves, women who were disenfranchised by the system. The gospel offered them something else. So women and the oppressed came into Christianity at a faster rate than, than nobles and men. But we also also know that a lot of these women were high status. Remember, I talked about Phoebus being a Phoebe being a, a patron. There were a lot of wealthy women who underwrote a lot of churches that were developing all over the Roman Empire. And then we also, one of the things that was noted about Christians was they would not leave their children out to starve. They, would not, they, didn't, they, didn't, they protected children they took, in, and they wouldn't kill girls. So they had a higher female birth rate because they weren't leaving their daughters out to, be, to die like much of the, the world was at the time. So in the first century to the church, you had a very high female-to-male sex ratio. And that afforded women lots of opportunities, to ecclesiastical offices, leadership, authority, influence. There are, there's lots of archaeological evidence for women who held these offices in the first centuries of the church. Um, some, two instances refer to a woman being a deaconess. There's one that a, a woman who was leader of a synagogue. There's another one where, in reference to women, they use the term presbytery. Another one that can be translated... the, the, the uh, could we translate a madam teacher? I'm trying to think of the word. I want, couldn't think of it. So the text that we have provide continuity evidence for women office holders in the church until around the 4th century. And what happened in the 4th century, that was when Jerome translated as Vulgate. But that's also when Constantine, the early part of the 4th century, is when Constantine legalized Christianity and Christianity become more mainstream. Then more and more men came in. As more men came in, the roles of women, roles that women were playing decreased more and more and more. The women who often had significant leadership positions during the initial pioneering and developmental stages of Christianity were replaced by men as the movement became more respectable. So women are, have been an invisible force in the history of the church. We have numerous narratives, but we also have Philip's daughters who are prophesying. Zelophehad's daughters who went to Moses saying, hey, can we take on our fathers? Can we take the land, the inheritance that it was destined to our father? That's unheard of. Only firstborn sons get the inheritance, but there's daughters do. There's Sarah. God was a covenant partner with Sarah. And there's, there's, there's so many other narratives that expand the scope of what it means to be a woman outside The four walls of the home, outside that of just mothering. Again, not saying that motherhood is not worthy. It is. And if someone wants if someone says, I just want to be a mom, then then go at it. That's great. And I honor you. But if someone wants to be an Air Force pilot, then go at it. I honor you. And if someone wants to be a pastor, then go at it. If you want to be president, then go for it. God has placed within women gifts and strengths and callings that the Bible affirms and the early church affirmed that have been lost over time. If we go back to the Proverbs 31 woman. In Hebrew culture, Proverbs 31 was not memorized by women as an ideal of per- perfection that they should live up to. It was memorized by men to sing and say to their wives at the Sabbath meal in the presence of family and guests. It was a way of men telling their wives, you are a woman of valor. The word is, I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce this right. I don't have it written down. It means a woman of valor. And at its core, it's a blessing, one that was never meant to be earned, but meant to be bestowed, given unconditionally. It's like the Hebrew version of you go, girl.